Well, good morning. I'm Caleb Anderson. I'm the lead pastor here. And Rooted is for you. If you have not yet done Rooted, just plan on it. Just bank on it. Just sign yourself up today. It's what everybody does around here. It's how you get to know who our church is. It's how you get to know uh, what we believe about God and that you have a purpose, that he has a purpose for you and it throws you in the community. It's a great thing. So sign up uh, on the patio today. It's fantastic. How many of you were at one of our Easter services this past weekend? Almost all of you. It was so wonderful. We did four. We did one in the park. That was awesome. We had almost 900 people in the park. Then we had three more services here Sunday morning that were spectacular. Thank you for helping to make that possible. So many of you volunteered. So many of you brought people. And a bunch of you probably came maybe to our church for the first time last weekend and are back. So welcome. I told you last week uh, about Rico's Tacos that that would be happening. And it will be happening. The breakfast burritos, I saw them. I didn't eat one yet, but I saw them, and they looked delicious. Uh, Secondarily, I told you that we're starting a new series this week. This morning, we start a new series, and it's called Things I Wish Jesus Never Said. Things that I wish Jesus never said. Controversial things. Confusing things. Curious things. And it made me think, and I've talked to some friends of mine. I have one friend who shared with me some things that she wished that somebody had never said. You might have some things that you wish someone in your life never said to you. Uh, here are hers. She, this is from a, a, a while back. But she said that, uh, what did she say? The first one was, oh, a, someone that she worked with, a coworker, And they worked on this project together, this big company. And, uh, and they were working on this project. And it was a new project and a new team. And this guy was smart and they were capable and they were getting along well. But then all of a sudden the emails started to take a little bit of a turn toward a more personal nature. She was like, uh-oh, I feel it coming. Uh, and then he went a little bit further, and it was just kind of like a, a little bit of a romantic compliment. She's like, oh, gosh, don't do it. Don't do it. And then the next time they were together at this kind of team meeting thing, he pulls her aside afterwards, after the, everyone else from the team had gone. He says, I just have to tell you, I think I'm in love with you. Things I wish people hadn't said. Because now she's like, oh, we can never see each other again. And so she moved him off of that team onto a different team because now you can't go back from that. We're stuck here. And I, I don't feel the same way, and so we're going to have to part ways. Now the workplace is awkward and all that kind of stuff. Same friend of mine uh, went on a date a long time ago. And she is, was on this date with this guy and things are going great. They're having drinks together. They have dinner. It goes on for hours. And then at the end of the dinner, he reaches across the table and hands her the check. <laughs> says, how do you want to split it? And she says, oh, things I wish people didn't say to me on our first date. Now I don't even know if this was a date anymore. Was this a date? Do you like me at all? Things that we, so no question that you have something that you wish either you hadn't said or that someone else hadn't said to you because now we can't go back from here. It just, it's out there. It is what it is, and I wish you hadn't said it. There are a number of things in the New Testament part of the Bible, especially in the accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. Jesus says a number of things that you just pause and you go, man, I wish he didn't say that. The implications of it. Jesus, we can't go back from here. 
Really? You mean, you mean that? Here's the one that we're going to talk about this morning. This is from Luke chapter 18. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. I wish Jesus didn't say that. Really, Jesus, sell everything that the guy has? That's the only way that he can come and follow you? Are you serious? What do you, who, can, who can follow you? Who can really be saved? Who can really be with you in this? So we're going to talk about that story. I'm going to tell you that story in more detail. But first, I want to tell you the context of that story. Because right before Jesus has this conversation with this guy, there's a couple of things that had happened. And I think it all weaves together and it's important to frame the conversation. The first thing that had happened was Jesus is talking to a bunch of religious people. And he tells them this story. He says, there was once a man at the temple, the place of worship. And this man was a religious leader, respected in the community. He does all the right things, says the right things, dresses the right way, goes to church, gives his money, does that kind of stuff. One of those kind of guys. And he's in the temple, and he's making a big display, and he's saying, God, thank you that I'm me. <laughs> and thank you that I'm not like these other sinners over here on the outside of things. Thank you, in fact, that I'm not like this tax collector guy, this cheat, this money swindler, this, this sinner. Thank you that I'm not like that. And then Jesus says, but in the same temple at the same time, there was this tax collector, this desperate man, this sinner, who cried out to God, couldn't even look up into the sky. In fact, he held his head down low and he beat his chest and he said, God, have mercy on me. I'm not worthy. Have mercy on me. And Jesus said to this religious people that are surrounding him, it's the desperate sinner who knows that he's desperate, who walked away connected to God that day not your religious hero. And the people were like, oh, well, oh, that's not comfortable. I don't really know how I feel about that. In other words, he was saying that humility is better than pride. Even if you think you're a fancy, put-together, spiritually religious and mature person, humility is better than pride. And the very next thing that happened is there were some people in the crowd that just wanted more time with Jesus. They just wanted to be around him more. They just wanted to hear anything that he might have to say. And they wanted their family to as well. And so they brought their kids with them to Jesus. But in that culture, that was just something you didn't do. Kids were, you know, they were back at home. They weren't, it wasn't an adult kind of deal for kids to hang out where adults were. They didn't do that. And so the disciples and the religious people were like, get those kids away from here. And Jesus says, stop it. Bring those kids to me. In fact, you can't even come to me unless you show up like a child. In other words, it's better to be humble and not prideful, and it's better to be childlike in your trust than to be independent and a mature adult. Now, that is the context for the story that we are about to read. Luke chapter 18, it says, A rich 
a certain ruler. In another context, in another translation, it says, a rich young ruler. Asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now think about it. Rich, young, and ruler. That's like the trifecta, okay? So he's got money, he's got youth, so we're just going to roll in like attractiveness to that whole deal, and he's got status and importance and all that. Those are things that we like. Those are things that you like. I know because you're an American who lives in Orange County. <laughs> more money is better than less money. Younger looking is better than older looking. Uh, more significance and status is better than less. It's just the way our American dream mindset thinks it just is. Even if you've broken outside of it, that is the natural tendency. That is the natural cultural draw. No fault of yours. It is what it is. And we are drawn toward those things. I'm going to call them this. I'm going to call them security, sexiness, and significance. We are drawn toward these, those things, and this man had them all. He had the security. He had the money. He came from a wealthy family. He had the sexiness. He was young. He didn't have to take pills and special ointments and uh, creams. To, uh, he was already young and pretty, all right? And then he had significance. He had clout. He was a ruler. One of the translations says he was a high-ranking religious leader. So he was one of those guys. He had those things. And Jesus responds to him and says, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Now, this is really important because we're going to get to his question. But first, he says, notice, he says, guy, rich young guy, you just called me good. No one is good except God alone. So tell me this. Are you saying that I'm God? Because that's going to have implications. Or are you just saying, good teacher, because it's a nice pleasantry, it's a nice thing to say, it's, it's what you say when you greet someone who's, you know, famous and talking to a lot of people and you're trying to get on my good side, or are you suggesting that I am God? We'll get back to that. You know the commands, Jesus continues, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. These are the big ten, these are the famous ten commandments. This is what every good Jewish boy and girl knew, had memorized, and the context, the whole deal. They get this, and the guy responds, yes, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. Really? Really? He's like you and like me. He didn't keep all the commandments perfectly. People don't keep all the commandments perfectly. That's not something that happens. And Jesus knew that, but what he also knew was that this guy was not only rich and young, but he was also a religious leader. And a religious leader in that day was an expert in the religious law, which makes you a lawyer. And a lawyer is great at finding Loopholes. And so our young, wealthy, religious leading ruler, influential guy was good at knowing the line that he could walk. Well, I didn't really sleep with her. Well, I didn't really do that thing. Well, I didn't fully cheat because the government doesn't need that part of my, you know, they don't, I, I didn't, right? And so he was a guy who understood how to walk the line. And Jesus wasn't even interested in pointing out his hypocrisy. He's, it's like he didn't even care. He's like, whatever. I'm just going to go to the heart of the matter. And here's what Jesus says. 
When he heard this, he said to him, okay, but you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Sell everything you have. Okay, so what you're telling me is that you're perfect. Fantastic. Now, go and sell everything and come and follow me. What? Things I wish Jesus hadn't said. So not only does this man claim to be perfect, Jesus is saying that's not enough in essence. But then on top of that, he's telling him to go sell everything he has, give it to the poor. Now, this is not a question of whether or not this guy was perfect or not perfect. We know he's not a perfect guy. This is also not a question of whether or not this guy gets into heaven or not based on whether he sells all his stuff. That's not the question. That's not the issue at hand. What Jesus is getting at is really important. He says there's still one thing. And he says to you today, there's still one thing. Like you've heard some stuff, you go to some Bible studies, you know some stuff maybe. Maybe you're brand new and you're just kind of checking things out. But, but there's one thing that I want to address with you today. He knows. I don't know what it is for you. He knows. You have one thing. You do. This isn't just about some rich guy back then. Jesus is creating a moment. He's saying this isn't about whether you've been perfect and never sinned before. You have one thing that is in the way of you fully following me. What's your one thing? What is your one thing? Last night I asked Hillary. I said, Hillary, do you have a one thing? I told her this story, and I said, do you have a one thing? It's kind of preventing you from fully following Jesus with reckless abandonment? She said, I don't know. But if I did, I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> I know you're just asking me because you need an illustration for your message. <laughs> and I'm not going to tell you and give you something to hold over me from this day forward. When I was a kid, I grew up uh, going to Young Life camps. Young Life is an organization that works with junior high, high school, and now college students. And my dad worked for Young Life for 30 years. And so working for Young Life every summer, the staff person would have to go and work at, at a camp. And there's a bunch of Young Life camps. One of them is up in Northern California called Woodleaf. And that's where we went almost every summer for a month. And so for four weeks, there would be four different camps of high school students uh, 400 students each, and they would come through, and they'd have the week of their life and be introduced to Jesus, and it was spectacular. And as a kid, I just got to experience it all, have fun, enjoy. And then as I got older, I would start to work myself uh, and be what they would call work crew and help and serve and do this kind of stuff. So as I got older, I was working there one summer, and they have these fun activities, and one of them in particular, they're called Ridge Runners. And they have this dirt path. I brought a photo of an actual ridge runner right there. That's what it looked like, this little kind of go-kart speed thing. And the, kid, the high school students would be able to get in those and tear around this track. But the thing is, 
because high school students are crazy, we had to put a governor on the engine. You know, I didn't do it. I don't know how to do that kind of stuff. But somebody put a governor on the engine, and so it was locked and set so that it couldn't go above a certain speed. I think it was like 30 miles an hour. But the things could actually go like 45. And so when the kids left for the week and we had one day in between to clean up the camp and everything, there was a mechanic guy who knew how to turn off or release the governor so we could take these things out on the open road and really open them up and see what was possible and, and really maximize and make the most of these ridge runners. And that was fun. And as I was thinking about this, I realized, even though you have a one thing, I have a one thing, and we hold on to it like it's our security blanket, like it's our chips that we just have to keep back in, in case this Jesus thing doesn't work out for us. The one thing is actually a governor on our life. It's actually restricting the fullness of our experience of the adventure with Jesus. When we replace putting our trust in him with putting our trust in some other thing, we put a governor on our experience of what he invites us into, which is life to the full. Everybody has a one thing. This religious leader, this rich young guy, his one thing, he had the trifecta, security, sexiness, significance. And he held on to those things so tightly that he was willing to walk away from Jesus. Here's what verse 23 says. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Dang it. Now, there's people, scholars, and theologians that have studied this for years. Some of them believe that when he says camel through the eye of a needle, what he's talking about is a gate. That a large camel would have to be stripped down and ducked down to get in through these gates in that day, but there's others that don't feel like that's what he's alluding to at all, that they really feel like he meant a camel, an actual large camel through the eye of a sewing needle. Because there's other references in Jewish literature to like an elephant going through a sewing needle's eye and all that kind of stuff. Either way, the point is that when people heard him say it, their instinct was to say, well, that's impossible. That's ridiculous. No one can do that. Because here's what they said. Those who heard asked, well, then who can be saved? You've just excluded all of us. Because you're saying that everyone has to sell everything to come and follow you? We're not sure we're bought in. Who can be saved? This guy says he's sinless. He said he's never broken any of the commandments. And he's not good enough? You're going to let him turn and walk away? Who's in? I wish you hadn't have said that, Jesus, because I've been here all day listening to all these amazing things that you're saying, and now you're telling me I'm out? And then Jesus' next line is this. What is impossible with man is possible with God. What is impossible with man is possible with 
God. I want you just to sit with that statement for a minute. We'll get back to the context of the story, but just sit, sit with that. Where do you need that to be true in your life this morning? What is impossible with man is possible with God. What doesn't seem possible, what doesn't seem probable, what makes you feel like you're never going to get there, what makes you feel like you're just an outsider, what makes you feel like maybe this isn't for you, what's impossible with man is possible with God. Wherever you feel like, well, if they just knew, or how can I, or this relationship will never, or this dream that I have, it's done. What's impossible with man is possible with God. Back to the first thing that Jesus said to the man. Remember? Are you suggesting that I'm God? Because that has some implications. If I'm just a good teacher, then I'll give you some advice. But if you're suggesting that you're speaking with the God of the universe, then no other discussion is necessary. Because whatever comes out of my mouth next, you just do. If I'm really the God who created everything and keeps breath in your lungs in this moment and keeps your heart beating here and now and has orchestrated your life as such that you live in America at such a time as this, if I'm really the God of the universe, what other questions or objections did you have? It's probably time just to get on board. Are you saying that I'm God? Because there's some implications if you're going to really believe that I am God. Now, what I don't want you to do, this, this guy turns and he walks away because it's too hard. Jesus, I wish you hadn't said that. And what I don't want you to do is to get bent over trying to figure out, does this guy not get to go to heaven? Is that what Jesus is saying? That he's not in because he wouldn't sell everything? That's not the point. This guy could have, he was a young guy, right? And Jesus hadn't even gone to the cross and resurrected from the dead yet. He could have made a decision at any moment. Okay, I put my trust in you. At any moment, at any moment. Maybe he saw Jesus as a pub later. And Jesus was like, dude, bro, thank you for letting me make that cool illustration. What I was getting at... What I was getting at is, is that everybody has a one thing, right? You don't actually have to sell all your stuff. I just, I just want you to recognize that your one thing is a governor on your life preventing you from living life to the full that I've designed for you, and I want you to trust me. And the dude would be like, cool. What I'm really getting at is that you and everybody else that's listening and everyone else that will be listening for the next 2,000 plus years has something that's restricting the adventure of a lifetime, that's restricting the connection that I want to have with them, that's restricting the life that I want to give to them. And besides, <laughs> you were asking the wrong question to begin with. Remember his question? It says a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Wrong question. If you were with us last week at Easter, we talked about a criminal hanging on the cross and him saying, Jesus, I, I, 
you're the deal. Remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And Jesus says, you'll be with me today in paradise. Not because the criminal did anything. He couldn't do anything. He hung on a cross and died. And that's what Jesus is trying to get across to everybody, including you. There's nothing that you can do. You can go to six Bible studies a week. You can memorize the entire Bible. You're not moving up a ladder of goodness. That's all valuable stuff on an adventure with Jesus for to maximize your relationship with him and whatever else, but it's not increasing your rank or your worthiness to be able to earn heaven or something like that. So your question is wrong, buddy. It's not about what you can do. It's about what I'm doing. It's about what only I can do for you because you think you've kept all these commandments. You haven't. Only Jesus lived a perfect life, died on a cross to pay the final death for all humanity, and then rose from the dead as if to say, new life for all. Let's do this. Come and follow me. Wrong question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Right question is essentially what Jesus asked them. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? It's better to be humble than prideful. It's better to live in childlike dependence than to be independent. And then he asks our buddy, security, sexiness, and significance, do you want to put your stock in all that? Or will you trust me? Your riches can't save you. Your security can't save you. Your family can't save you. Your significance can't save you. It's impossible on your own. Will you trust me? And then he says, what's impossible with man is possible with God. Uh, a number of years ago, when Hillary and I were first married, uh, we were kind of struggling, wrestling with this new marriage that we were in. We came from different backgrounds. Uh, I was like, oh, I don't know. I went through a divorce once already in my mid-20s. I don't really know if I know how to do marriage. I was nervous about it. I was trying to be somebody. I was trying to figure out my place. And so we went to counseling. And I remember we sat in a counseling office, and I sat on a couch, Hillary on my right, and this counseling lady starts asking me questions, poking at me. And uh, she got me to the place where she was asking, like, what are you afraid of? Like, why are you so uptight? Why are you so concerned about, you know, managing her and making her a certain way that reflects you better or something like that? And she asked me, what are you afraid of? And I remember thinking what I had thought at that time of my life, which is I'm not afraid of dying. I'm not afraid of not having money or stuff or whatever. I'm afraid of not reaching my potential. That for whatever reason, how I grew up and how I'm wired, I have this thing in me that's consumed with, it's concerned with being better. I should be further along I shouldn't be struggling with this anymore. I should be, I should be, I should be there, 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 there. And she goes, oh, really? And she goes into her closet and pulls out a rope, which is, I guess, what counselors keep in their closets. (laughs) It wasn't the moment to ask about that. I just (laughs) went with it. She hands me one end of the rope, and she takes the other, and she starts pulling. She pulls. I'm like, oh, okay. She pulls harder, and I'm like, do you want me to get up? (laughs) 
She doesn't answer. She just pulls again. So I go, all right. And I stand up, and she keeps pulling. She says, I'm your potential. And I'm like, oh, this is serious. She she pulls again. I'm your potential. I'm your potential. And she's pulling me, and she's pulling me across the other side of the room. And she says, "Okay, okay, stop here. Now look back at your wife. I look back. Hillary's crying. She says, Hillary, how do you feel? And she goes, by myself? And she goes, is that how you feel in your marriage? Hillary's like, yep. And I sort of got it. And then she looks at me and she says, your potential is ruining your relationships and is preventing you from living in the present moment. And it's not even a thing. Like it's this ambiguous make-believe idea out there that says that you should be more significant than you are. Who, do, who decides that? And you can't even get anywhere without living in the present moment. You can only build from the present moment on. And then I really started to get it. My potential was my one thing. Tied to significance, tied to being somebody, tied to the pressure that I felt. You have a one thing. Do you know what your one thing is? Whatever it is, you're clinging to it, you're holding on to it, and it's pulling you out of the present moment, out of relationship, and out of the adventure of walking with Jesus, following the God of the universe, by the way, who says, I made you, I designed you, I came here and did this for you so that we could have a relationship, not just one day in heaven, right now. Did you notice when we were reading it that the guy asked about eternal life and Jesus responded with the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is right here, right now. In another place, Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, right here. The kingdom of God is at hand. But you're squeezing this other thing for dear life, like your life depends on it, like you can't let it go, like, like Jesus, don't, don't talk about this, don't, don't worry about this. This is what I need as my backup plan. This is my insurance. This is my security blanket. Don't mess with this thing. And he's like, come and follow me. But you need to open up your hands. The kingdom of God is at hand right here, right now. This is the adventure. I'm not even talking about heaven someday. I'm talking about today. Will you follow me? Will you trust me? Now, all of us have a one thing, uh, but there are some of us that are here this morning that I think maybe you need to decide to trust Jesus for the first time. Maybe you were at one of our Easter services. Maybe you've been kind of on a journey with us for a while. I want to I create a space this morning where you can make a decision to follow this God and kind of create a marker out of it. That you can look back on a day like today and say, that's when it happened. Uh, maybe it had been happening for a while, but that's when I took a stand. And that's when I said, I'm following this Jesus. There's a verse that says, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord 
and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, we just celebrated at Easter Jesus coming and dying on a cross and raising from the dead because there was a break. There was a fracture in the universe, a fracture in our soul. That's what sin is. It's a disconnection between humanity that God created and the God who wants a relationship. He says, I, come, I came to restore that. That's done. Will you follow me? This is why I came, for relationship, connection with you. Now, if you're here and you've never made a kind of open declaration like that, I want you to do it now. We do this several times a year. We do this all the time around Mariners. It's an opportunity for you. Many people have done it before. Just, it's not for me. It's not for, it's for you. So that you can look back and you can do something uncomfortable and you can say, I'm drawing a line in the sand. I'm in. I'm opening up my hands. I'm letting go. I'm in. I believe. And so that's what I want to invite you to say, is to simply just stand to your feet if you've never done this before and say, I believe. I believe. I'm in. I want this relationship. I want to follow this Jesus. I want you to do that right now.